Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy. I'm Zach Rausch, your host from Heterodox Academy. Today, a recording of our virtual event, A Fine Balance, Academic Freedom and Academic Responsibility. The event was moderated in March of this year by Keith Whittington, professor of politics at Princeton University. He is also the chair of the newly formed Academic Freedom Alliance. The panel for this discussion about academic freedom includes former college presidents Judith Shapiro of Barnard College and Brian Rosenberg of McAllister College. For many years, Judith was a professor of anthropology. Brian is president-in-residence at Harvard Graduate School of Education and a scholar on Charles Dickens. Both have deep administrative, academic, and scholarly experience. Let's begin with an opening statement from Judith Shapiro. Our conversation uh, this evening is going to get us into differences between academic freedom and freedom of speech and complications of each. But first, I'd like to start with the issue of uh, academic freedom, academic responsibility, or more generally, freedom and responsibility. And I'd like to make a general assertion about American society, and that is that our insistence on freedom outpaces our acknowledgement of responsibility to what seems like a culturally pathological degree. I should note that we anthropologists get to criticize our own culture in a way that we're not supposed to do for the ones we study. Now, the issue of freedom versus responsibility does play out with respect both to academic freedom and freedom of speech. Uh, and to see how, I'd like to consider really two issues. One has to do with the quality of speech, notably a concern for truth-seeking, and also contexts of speech, namely what kinds of speech are appropriate to what kinds of social settings. So beginning with the uh, question of the quality of speech, uh, it's interesting to begin with Heterodox Academy itself. Now the Academy's core mission involves an invitation for multiple voices to be heard and for resisting what seem to be orthodoxies. Now, I think there's an important benefit of the heterodox approach, which the academy actually might take more explicit credit for. And that is this notion of multiple voices gets us beyond this common dualistic uh, mode of discourse, pro and con, right and left, et cetera, into a more pluralistic dialogue, which I think is very important. Now, at the same time though, there are those of us, and I am one, who felt that in the early days of Heterodox Academy, it didn't pay quite enough attention to standards of speech, quality of speech, namely the matter of truth, or of getting as close to it as we possibly can. I mean, we know that this is an ongoing project. We continue to learn, and then we have to be able to, to get closer that we're moving in the right direction. And, and what we say we know continues to, to change, but to get us going in the right direction, we need to feel confident about how we are speaking. Um, now, we should be wary, I think, of appeals to quote, diversity of speech that are not balanced by a concern for the truth, by a concern for qualities of speech. Now, we see this in our political lives, we see it in government pressures on higher education, 
And these unbalanced approaches can actually be equal opportunity in political terms. I mean, from, from what has come to be called the right, um, I'm not gonna use the word conservative because the way that word is used these days is probably causing Edmund Burke to turn in his grave at a very great rate of speed. Uh, let's say the right calls for diversity of speech very commonly based on beliefs that colleges and universities have been taken over by the liberals or bit more particularly the liberal elite. Now, leaving aside, the, we won't get into defining liberal, but I think we can assume here that elite in liberal elite is probably not used with a focus on wealth. That's yet another issue. Now, in this political anti-liberal elite context, there are legislators who really are trying, as we know, to use speech issues to um, put pressure on higher education, cut funding, particularly to public institutions. Now, what we get from the left tends to be called or often categorized as, uh, by its opponents particularly, political correctness, cancel culture, coddling, safe spaces, et cetera. These are all familiar terms. Now they, they surely rest on stereotypes of what is actually going on. We might say if you were to do ethnography in colleges and universities of various kinds, you would see what a stereotype this is. But to the extent that there are tendencies in this direction, they do get in the way of seriously useful approaches uh, to, to dialogue and speech. Then we might just mention briefly the free speech fundamentalists who base their approach on what's called the notion of a marketplace of ideas, uh, a concept they apply to institutions of higher education as, rel as well as to the political sphere. Now we can e examine that metaphor in greater uh, depth if we want to, but for now I would just ask whether we really want to think of colleges and universities as places where should, you should be able to sell anything that anyone else is willing to buy. That somehow doesn't seem the right image or, or um, how should we put it, characterization of an institution of higher education. So this brings us, of course, to the issue of the quality of speech, to what we might call truth. And it surely should be less challenging to stand for truth in academic settings, given the core values of institutions whose mission is education. I know that Brian is going to be getting into this in greater detail. So I'll leave it there for now and just say a couple of general things about the issue of contexts of speech. So as for the classroom as a context, their speech should serve the academic goals of the course, the place of the course in the curriculum, and also should be pedagogically effective. That is, it's not just what you teach, but how you teach it. To take another speech situation, there is commencement. Now commencement is essentially, it seems to me, a celebratory ritual. It's a rite of passage. It honors the graduates and their families, and it celebrates the institution itself. So therefore, it may not be the best social context for inviting a controversial speaker who will make herself or himself the center of attention and the main topic. And finally, just a brief word about the online world. Now, once upon a time, a few friends, colleagues could sit in an actual physical room and they could say various things about their colleagues or about administrators or about faculty or about even the students 
while sharing some adult beverages, perhaps. Now, um, if you could trust these people and have confidence in them, you really could say um, all kinds of things. That is not really the case for the online world, it would seem. And uh, it's no longer the world in which we live. And people do say all kinds of things on social media that many of us would agree simply don't belong there. The problem, of course, is that they, the reactions to these things can get completely out of scale. And so the question then becomes, how do you deal with behavior like this, short of firing people or you know, doing the kinds of things we too commonly see? Now, I think we also will find that our legal system cannot completely address these, these issues and these problems. Um, it cannot solve everything. So I guess we just need to have ways of living together in a social world of shared norms and figure out the best way to enforce them. Thank you very much, uh, Brian Rosenberg. Uh, thank you, Keith. Uh, hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'd like to begin with two uh, reminders that I use with my students all the time. Uh, one is pretty straightforward, and that is that life is complicated. Uh, and most of the really interesting questions are complicated ones uh, with complicated and nuanced answers. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to exploring a topic that really is not straightforward uh, and does have a lot of nuance attached to it. Uh, the other thing I remind students of all the time is that the university does not exist in a bubble, in isolation from the society around it. And typically the things that we see play out on a college campus are very much reflective of the things that we see play out in the society around the institution. And so a lot of these debates that we're having about free speech, uh, about diversity of opinion at universities are reflections of broader social debates. Though I think they have, function, they have elements that are distinctive to the university context. Uh, what I'd like to do is distinguish among three terms that I think are often used interchangeably. And when they're used interchangeably, that is not particularly helpful. Uh, one is free speech. Uh, a second is academic freedom. Uh, and a third related to that is tenure. Uh, I'm a little bit sheepish uh, about talking about free speech when I'm looking at the screen with one of the world's experts on free speech staring at me. Uh, but uh, without delving into too much detail, uh, I think we can all agree that free speech is essentially a legal concept, uh, which says that the government should not punish you uh, for expressing your opinions uh, through speech, through what you write, through what you say, within limits that uh, are either defined legally or defined by, by public mores. Academic freedom is something altogether different. Uh, and the best distinction that I've read uh, is uh, in a line that I'm going to quote from Joan Scott. Uh, and what she said was free speech makes no distinction about quality, academic freedom does. Uh, and this is to some extent an echo of what Judith has said, uh, but we have to remind ourselves that universities are in the business of curating speech all the time, every day, uh, whether it's in a classroom, or whether it's in a broader public setting. Uh, in deciding what is and is not taught uh, in a curriculum, uh, in deciding uh, who is and is not invited to be on a faculty, in deciding what answers students give in a classroom 
uh, are right and wrong. Uh, and so the responsibility of the university is not to be a forum for all points of view. It is not Hyde Park Corner. But the responsibility of the university is to make decisions about what forms of speech will contribute to its core mission, which is education. Uh, and so where it gets really interesting is, in, is not on the question of whether everything could be said, but on the question of whether a particular thing does or does not contribute to the education of students. Uh, so academic freedom uh, is generally defined, if you go back to the AAUP 1940 statement, uh, by three principles. The first is that your teaching of your subject uh, shall not be interfered with. The second is, is that your research uh, into your discipline shall not be interfered with. Uh, and the third, and this gets to our discussion of freedom and responsibility, is probably the one to which there is least often made a reference. And I, it's important enough that I want to read it because I think it bears very directly on our question of freedom and responsibility. Uh, and to Judith's point about the world we're living in, uh, my guess is that this statement had a very different meaning in 1940 uh, than it does in 2021 in a world of social media. But what the third essential point um, in that 1940 statement says is the following. College and university teachers are citizens members of a learned profession and officers of an educational institution. When they speak or write as citizens, they should be free from institutional censorship or discipline, but their special position in the community imposes special obligations. As scholars and educational officers, they should remember that the public may judge their profession and their institution by their utterances. Hence, they should at all times be accurate, should exercise appropriate restraint, should show respect for the opinions of others and should make every effort to indicate that they are not speaking for the institution. Uh, now, there is, there is an interesting tension in that statement between the notion that uh, academics should be free to say whatever they want, uh, but they also should have an obligation uh, to be responsible to their institutions and their professions. It raises the question of what you do when they do not uphold that obligation. Uh, is, it, is it incumbent upon the institution? Is it incumbent in effect upon the professional guild uh, to speak out uh, or not? So maybe we can return to that question a little bit later on. Uh, the third distinction I just wanna draw is between academic freedom and tenure, uh, because the two are sometimes conflated. Uh, tenure is not a necessary condition for academic freedom. Tenure is a protection of academic freedom, but we should be clear that academic freedom applies equally or should apply equally uh, to faculty members who are not tenured uh, and not on the tenure track. Uh, so the fact that you are not tenured does not mean you should have no academic freedom. Uh, it does mean that you run a greater risk in most instances uh, of having your academic freedom curtailed. Uh, now, I just wanna walk us very quickly through three not so hypothetical scenarios uh, to define how academic freedom is different from the exercise of free speech. Uh, maybe I'll begin with the most straightforward and move to the least. Um, let's imagine a hypothetical physics professor 
who decides that he is going to walk into his classroom at the start of the fall semester uh, and devote the entire semester to the uh, teaching of Dickens. Personally, I would be happy. Uh, my guess is that the institution would not. Uh, the, that professor is violating no laws. Uh, that professor in the context of free speech is certainly not uh, subject to punishment for speaking about Dickens. In an institutional context, though, uh, I would argue that professor is not protected by academic freedom by straying outside the boundaries of uh, his or her appropriate discipline. Um, a second instance, and, and this one I think is highly relevant, let's imagine our same physics professor, and I don't mean to pick on physics, um, Let's imagine that our same physics professor is told that, um, that he must attend a session on Title IX training and decides that he does not want to do that. Is the decision not to do that protected uh, by academic freedom? My argument would be that it is not. Uh, that the decision whether, whether or not to attend a session on Title IX training has nothing to do with the ability of that professor to exercise uh, his uh, ability to conduct his research or his ability to do his teaching. Uh, in my view, that is a question essentially of employment law. Uh, and I am neither an attorney nor a judge, so I can't tell you uh, how a court might rule on that. Uh, but that is a question of a relationship between an employee and an employer, and it's not essentially a question of academic freedom. Uh, the third instance, and it's a real world instance, uh, is to me the most interesting, and it bears upon Judith's remarks about our attention to truth. Uh, some of you may know that uh, last semester, uh, Elise Stefanik, who's a representative, a congressional representative from upstate New York, uh, was removed from the advisory board of the Institute of Politics at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, because uh, in the statement uh, that the university released, uh, she made repeatedly untrue statements about the 2020 election. Uh, it provoked a wide range of responses uh, in a highly polarized environment. Those who believed that Stefanik should not have been removed argued that it was essentially partisan politics, uh, that she was removed because she took a political stance that was different from the prevailing political stance at the Institute of Politics. The Institute of Politics argument was no. Uh, what she did was make repeated statements that were demonstrably untrue. Uh, and if we as an institution cannot uphold fidelity to the truth as a core principle, uh, then we're not fulfilling our mission. Uh, and so the question raised by a case like that uh, is essentially what role should truth play? Uh, my own view is it should play a dispositive case uh, in instances like that. Uh, but uh, that's where things in the current world get very, very complicated. Uh, so uh, I promised that I would keep my remarks relatively brief. I will keep my promise to Keith to do that and, and I will stop talking. And I'm happy to open it up, Keith, to questions from you and to questions from our listeners. 
That's excellent. That sets us up with um, a lot of things to think about, and um, uh, they put on the table some very uh, interesting uh, questions. And so I'm trying to think in part about where best to um, start with that. And I guess I'm tempted just to start where uh, where Brian left it with the last example of, um, of, of the degree in which the university is committed to uh, truthful statements, and you have a member of the university community who is not um, it, uh, holding that because they're uh, repeatedly issuing uh, non-truthful statements. Um, in so to lay aside uh, context of uh, uh, politicians who might serve some role in the university, instead just imagine a, a straightforward case of a faculty member um, uh, at the university. Um, if a faculty member is saying untrue things about their own disciplinary area of expertise, then they're clearly behaving in a way that's professionally incompetent and ought to be sanctioned by the university. They were telling their classes things that, for example, their discipline regards is just untrue. Uh, we would clearly regard that as, as equally as problematic as an engineering professor teaching Dickens uh, during their engineering class. Um, but imagine instead we think they're saying things that are untrue about things that are outside their disciplinary expertise. That is to say they're on social media all the time and they've got some uh, theories that they uh, are very committed to um, but all the experts in, the, in that particular field think that those, those theories are completely wrong. Um, uh, but it's also not their professional expertise, and so presumably it doesn't, doesn't speak to their professional competence um, in their particular field. So we have an English professor saying untruthful things about economics, and the econ economics department is very upset about this. Um, is it appropriate to discipline the English professor for saying untruthful things about economics? Um, in this sort of private capacity, as uh, say, on social media um, all the time? And, and where's the boundary? So I'll, I'm happy to, to, to jump in and start. To me, Keith, it depends on context. So that, uh -huh. that, in other words, where you make those statements. So if you go back again to the foundational AAUP statement on academic freedom, um, one of the parts I did not read, uh, point number two, said teachers are entitled to freedom in the classroom and discussing their subject but they should be careful not to introduce into their teaching controversial matter, which has no relation to their subject. So if we take that, that literally, we take the AUP statement at its word, uh, an economics professor, an English professor who in the course of teaching a class uh, starts essentially saying completely inaccurate and untrue things about economics uh, is essentially not fulfilling their professional responsibility uh, and could if that person refuses to stop uh, face sanctions. I think if those statements are made in a private capacity, essentially, uh, on social media, I don't think the appropriate response, unless they really cross a boundary into the hurtful and offensive, which is not the category you're describing right now, what you're describing is the demonstrably untrue, uh, I don't think that should merit a sanction. Uh, or if it does, the sanction should come from the appropriate professional body, not from the institution. Uh, that is, I would like to see, you know, let, let, we, we actually did have an example of something a little bit like this uh, with some of the people that were working in the previous administration uh, on COVID response. Uh, and we had some people who were either physicians in a different discipline uh, or even infectious disease specialists who were saying things that most infectious disease specialists disagreed with. Uh, the response, and I think the appropriate response, was from other infectious disease specialists uh, who said, this is not true, and we think it's irresponsible of this person to say this. 
So, so generally, in my view, and this is coming from someone who's a college president for 17 years, um, punishments don't work all that great. Uh, and so uh, to me, the best response to cases like that, if it's outside the classroom, uh, would be from professional peers. And, and also even within the institution. Uh, I think part of our depending uh, on the legal system so much is that we are not, we have not become very good at uh, social control of the kinds that all societies tend to use of a more informal sort. So, so one thing we're talking about is to especially given y'all's experience as university presidents and leaders, there's a bit of controversy about um, uh, how active university presidents should be in uh, issuing statements, countering the speech of their own faculty. Um, uh, as of some, some university leaders historically have taken the view um, that university presidents really shouldn't be weighing in um, on these discussions. It's up to the faculty to sort of have whatever debates they're going to have and the university leaders should stay out of it. Um, but others can quite frequently in our era of social media, university presidents feel a lot of pressure to issue statements condemning faculty for having said this or that um, uh, on social media and, and the like. And maybe also we might imagine in this kind of context of uh, truthfulness where a university president thinks that if somebody's not being truthful, maybe the correct response is for the president to come out and correct them um, uh, through some kind of statement. What's your view about how um, active and aggressive uh, university presidents should be in countering the speech um, of their own faculty members? Well, Keith, if I, if I can start on that, I think there's a lot of variation in the kinds of relationships that presidents have with their faculty. And a blessed thing is when a president has a really good relationship with the faculty. A sense of humor can be extremely important in achieving this. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that the problem is often not just whether the, whether the president takes the wrong action, but also whether the utterance comes out like pablum. And, and that is often a problem with presidential speaking is that it just sounds like this sort of blather. Uh, and, and it seems to me that there ought to be ways that faculty, that, that enough faculty, let's say a faculty says something out of line, there are enough other faculty who might agree with the president about that. I mean, that would really be the most desirable state of affairs, but Brian you know, may have had more actual experience with this sort of thing. Well, I will say that I never had in 17 years to issue any kind of a public statement uh, contradicting something said by one of my faculty members, which is fortunate. Uh, I did, however, over 17 years, uh, have occasion to issue more than one public statement. Uh, and they tended to fall into two categories. And the first I would describe, and I think it's the least controversial, is just the, the pastoral role that a college president plays. Um, so um, after an incident that is traumatic for uh, some portion of your community, uh, a shooting in a church, a shooting in a synagogue. Uh, McAllister was, is located about uh, three miles from the spot where George Floyd was murdered. Uh, and it, it seems to me in cases like that, uh, it is entirely appropriate and sometimes even necessary uh, for a president to comfort a community and to try to model the kind of response that a community should have. Um, the other instances where I think a president should speak, uh, and in this I'm very much guided by someone who was one of the most important mentors in my professional career, and that was Bill Bowen. Um, 
you know, Bill defined three sets of circumstances uh, in which college or university presidents should speak to what one might define as controversial issues. The first is when they bear directly upon the educational mission of the university. Uh, and, you know, the clearest example that I can come up with is affirmative action. So countless university presidents have either signed amicus briefs or issued statements in defense of affirmative action on the grounds that uh, affirmative action, in their view, allows them to carry out the educational of the mission of the institution more effectively. The same comes, uh, the same uh, applies to immigration policies. Uh, the second category is when it relates in some very direct way to the relation between the university and the surrounding community. Those don't happen very often. Uh, and the third is what I've described as the break the glass moment. When something is so consequential and so important that it actually threatens in a fundamental way the ability of the university to do its work. And the, the example, the omnipresent example, of course, that everybody uses is Nazi Germany. You know, would it have been appropriate for university presidents to speak out against Nazism given the existential threat to the university? Most people would say yes. So I tried to use those criteria uh, to whether it's a faculty statement or any other statement to guide when I would make a public statement. And again, maybe I was just lucky, but I never had to do that in response to, well, maybe I just had a responsible group of faculty. Let me say it that way. I never had to do it in response to a faculty member. Um, let me ask as well about this from a, uh, a, a bit of a border case of thinking about the scope of academic freedom. Um, so as you mentioned with the 1940 AUP statement, um, there's a concern about sort of different dimensions of academic freedom in different kinds of contexts, whether we're talking classroom or scholarship or extramural uh, speech. Um, but one kind of issue, and, and as you highlighted, um, uh, we think of academic freedom as being associated with those who are serving in a scholarly or an instructional capacity, whether or not they have tenure themselves. Um, but on the boundary, what we don't think academic freedom applies to are university administrators, in particular senior leaders of universities. So as president of a university, uh, we wouldn't think of you having academic freedom if you say something uh, controversial in that context, the board of trustees might decide uh, they need a new president um, to take their place. And we wouldn't think of that as a violation of academic freedom. My question, I guess, is how far down the chain of administration do you go? Uh, before you start thinking, well, wait a second, this person um, uh, it can be held responsible for the things they say. Um, so we think university presidents are a relatively easy case, but and presumably that's true for deans and provosts, for example, as being relatively easy cases because they're senior leaders. They need to be able to implement the policy vision of the university as a whole. Is that equally true of department chairs, uh, chairman of uh, hiring committees and departments, et cetera. So when when do you get down the level of the kind of administrative work that faculty do when you start saying, well, because you're exercising this kind of administrative role, you've now given up part of your academic freedom and you could be held accountable uh, for things you say in ways that aren't true, just if you're simply a professor doing uh, whatever it is professors do besides administer uh, things. Well, this actually gets us back to the uh, the issue where uh, Brian was talking about something being an employment issue rather than a speech issue. And in fact, if you think of all of these different um, positions, the issue really is about professional responsibility. So in other words, in each of these roles, there are presumably professional responsibilities. So it would be unprofessional behavior 
presumably, depending on what it was exactly that the person did. Yeah, and I, that, that's, I would agree. Um, you know, in all of these cases, uh, one tries to apply uh, both common sense uh, and, and fairness, uh, but it very much depends, I think, upon the context of the remark or the behavior and the responsibilities of the administrative employee. Uh, so, you know, again, I sometimes very extreme examples make it clear if someone uh, is working as an administrator in disability services uh, and makes a remark that is overtly offensive or disrespectful uh, to students with a learning disability, it seems to me it would be perfectly appropriate to say that doesn't fall under the category of academic freedom and there should be a response. But typically issues involving staff and administrators uh, as Judith said, our employment issues uh, and um, not academic freedom issues. Now it can get fuzzy. What if a dean is teaching a class on American politics as could easily happen? Many of my presidential colleagues uh, teach classes in their disciplines. When, when that person is acting as a teacher, as a faculty member, in my view, the rules of academic freedom apply. Uh, so it depends upon, it's not defined as much by the individual as by the function that individual is carrying out. So how far would you push that, Brian? So if, if somebody, if a, say a president of a university was teaching a class in their discipline, um, uh, presumably we think somebody else could not um, uh, intervene to tell them how they have to teach that class. But on the other hand, if they did something that was controversial in that class, um, would you think they could lose their presidency as a consequence of what they did in the classroom? Because normally we would think a professor at least shouldn't lose their academic position because of something they did controversial, but within professional competence in the classroom. Um, so the question is sort of how, what kind of repercussions can emerge out of a classroom context um, that, might, that might back up on a, on a university president, for example? Well, Keith, yeah. if a, 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 a university president is teaching a class, that university president is a faculty member in that context. Yeah. Now, in terms of who can do what, how serious was it and there's all that sort of thing. But in terms of who can uh, uh, have some authority, it's the board. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, you know, the simple answer is that a, a university president who did that is, is exercising very poor judgment and probably shouldn't <laughs> be a university president. <laughs> um, so even though in, you know, strictly speaking, the rules of, of academic freedom should apply, uh, I think it would be not unreasonable for a board to say, look, your primary responsibility as a university president, what I always used to say is, is sort of like, like a, a physician. My first responsibility is do no harm. Mm -hmm. you know, don't do anything uh, that's going to harm the institution that you are responsible for overseeing. Okay. Uh, and if your judgment is bad enough, uh, you know, sometimes people make mistakes, but if your judgment is bad enough, uh, to go into a classroom and say things that you know are going to stir up a hornet's nest. Uh, in my view, you're not really fulfilling that responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the points from the 1940 AUP report that you noted is the protection of teaching and, and you uh, and, and what happened in the classroom. And you sort of uh, drew that out fairly broadly to um, including sort of the design of the curriculum and, and uh, how you are structuring the class and not just sort of what you're saying uh, in the classroom itself. So one question is sort of how, um, uh, how much, uh, how responsive in general, I guess, should the curriculum be to student demands? Um, and so if students don't like 
um, uh, what the syllabi look like for particular classes, if they don't like how the curriculum is organized and think they ought, that the faculty ought to be teaching different things uh, than they currently are. Um, to, when does that, if ever, does it step over the line and become an academic freedom issue um, as opposed to merely a, a university governance issue if students start imposing those kinds of demands um, on, on what the teaching and curriculum ought to look like? Well, I guess uh, I should turn this over to Brian first. I have never actually encountered that. Uh, I was perhaps a college president in happier times, but certainly what the first thing one might want to do is have an interesting dialogue and conversation to just find out. You sit down with the students, what are they thinking about? And, and they, you know, at least one should hear. No, the, the, the curriculum is responsibility of the faculty. You know, we're getting paid, they're paying, there are all kinds of points like that. But I think certainly it's a, a, an interesting topic for conversation. So I, I, I did encounter such moments. <laughs> um, look, my view is that higher education is a business in which the customer does not always know best. <laughs> uh, and I am something of a traditionalist in this area. I think the curriculum is the responsibility of the faculty. Uh, and the faculty is in the best position to determine uh, what should and should not be taught, both on a broad curricular level and, and even down to the level of what should be taught in a particular class. Uh, really, what we're talking about here is, is a, an issue of, of politics uh, within, within the university context. Uh, that is, how much pressure uh, is an administration willing to, um, to bear up under? How much pressure is a, is a department or a faculty member uh, willing to bear up under? And I look, I, there's a real part of me that's glad I left the classroom a long time ago because I, I look back on some of the things that I taught then. Um, and I've talked about this with my students. I, I taught uh, a class that included some some really pretty challenging material. I don't know that I would teach it now. Uh, I don't think that's a good thing, uh, but you know, each of us has to make a kind of calculation about how much pressure uh, we are willing to bear up under. Uh, but you know, my view is that it is, it is the faculty uh, that should be making the decision uh, about what is and is not taught. But we know we live in a world with a tremendous amount of social and political pressure, and that is inevitably going to have an impact on people. But as a, I would see my responsibility as a president uh, as a defense of the faculty response, not just the right, but the responsibility uh, to determine what's in the curriculum. So I want to transition to some questions that we got from the um, audience. And, and that answer actually uh, makes for a nice transition to what is a very big question. I was going to say it for later, but it does seem uh, to uh, naturally follow from what you just suggested. Which somebody asks, um, what are the greatest threats to academic freedom uh, today? Um, so uh, you suggested in part this concern about um, uh, if you're teaching today, you're not sure you would teach the exact same material in the same way out of a concern for how students might react. Um, uh, what, what do you, if you're, if you're making a list of all the threats to academic freedom and maybe even uh, ranking the list from sort of uh, most worrisome to less worrisome, um, what's, what's going to appear on that list? Judith, you want to go first? Nope. <laughs> okay. Well, my, so number one on my list is probably not what you'd expect. And it's not the most obvious answer. Uh, the number one threat to academic freedom is the collapsing financial model of American higher education. 
look, it's not true at Princeton, it's not true at Harvard, but Princeton and Harvard are not representative of the environments within which most of our colleagues are teaching and working. Uh, and so I think what we're seeing as the greatest threat to academic freedom is simply sort of relentless financial pressure uh, that is causing institutions to do things like make dramatic cuts uh, and have fewer faculty in tenured lines. So I think that is the kind of overriding threat more than any particular political threat. Other threats are coming from multiple directions. You know, I mean, it certainly I, I am a believer that um, there is too much silencing right now uh, on college campuses of viewpoints that don't conform to uh, the orthodoxy on a particular campus. And I don't think that's a good thing. You don't have to agree with people, uh, but unless they are being, unless they are violating some clearly defined campus norm, uh, people should be able to say what they believe. Uh, and I think it's harder now uh, for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, and I don't think that's a good thing. But we're also seeing pressure come from legislatures yeah. uh, that particularly at public institutions are trying to say you, you must teach this or you can't teach that. Uh, and that's a major threat as well uh, to be told that you, know, you, you can't teach a particular subject. Uh, you can't teach the, you know, the Times, New York Times project uh, because we don't like it. You can disagree with it. Uh, you can say it's good or bad history, uh, but faculty members should have the freedom to decide whether they will or will not teach it. So um, like most things in higher education, I think it's kind of coming at us from every side. Yeah. Uh, and um, I suppose it's one of the few things and threats that's nonpartisan because I do really believe it's coming from every side. Yeah. Brian, it's interesting. I think the threats that come from the legislature are clearer you know, to view. In dealing with the threats that come from people uh, not willing to, you know, engage in what might be problematic, you know, in other words, fearful of saying things they might think uh, and keeping them to themselves, or even in student life, the extent to which identity groups take a lot of the energy of where students come together. Uh, as opposed to, you know, you could have a, um, uh, a photography club, for example, or you could have a group of students from the same ethnic group. Now, I think we all, as a, as a student group, now I think we all want to have times when we hang with people that really understand us and, um, and, and we can really be relaxed with. But when it came to be calling such groups safe spaces, for example, what happened was the idea that getting out of that space was somehow unsafe. And so I think what we've had, I may not be being clear enough here, is that we have a tendency for identity become, to become not a point of departure, but a terminus. So if we can make it safer for people with radically different ideas, students, or different assumptions, to be able to be willing to, you know, speak out loud about them without you know, feeling that something totally dreadful is going to happen. I mean, we've really got to find, it's like the heterodox academy. We've really got to find ways to make students less fearful of saying the wrong thing because that's how they're gonna learn. 
So I have to admit that when I started my career, I did not give much thought to academic freedom as such. Um, I think I took it for granted rather than something I was self-consciously thinking about and, and, it's, and wasn't thinking about problems that were arising in that, through that lens at least, um, even in other contexts. Um, uh, it is uh, more on people's minds these days, perhaps in general, um, than it might have been on mine when I was beginning uh, my career. Um, so one of the questions from the audience is, um, uh, one, generally, how can everyday members of faculty administration contribute to academic freedom and help uh, bolster it? And were there particular things that you did as university presidents um, in your own institutions to help cultivate academic uh, freedom? Was it something that uh, you felt needed to be cultivated specifically? And were there initiatives or actions you took um, that were sort of designed to help that? I would have to say, uh, as I think back, I did not experience it as a problem uh, on my campus during my years as a president. And I think that I showed, uh, and I'm sure Brian did as well, such a you know, large degree of interest in the scholarly work of members of the faculty and of their teaching that um, it, it just did not arise. Uh, as far as I can remember, academic freedom issues really did not arise during my years, but my years ended a lot, a lot earlier than Brian's did. So I, I, again, uh, I was fortunate in not uh, being on a campus where there was an example of a speaker being shouted down uh, or of students demanding that a particular faculty member not teach a particular course. Um, but I also am aware that it could have happened. It would not have been uh, extraordinarily surprising to me uh, had it happened. You know, I think that where you can have the most impact as a leader is in modeling the kind of behavior you want to see on your campus. Doesn't work in every instance, uh, but you know, one of the things. Look, as a college president, you stand up in, at faculty meetings and you get lots of people hurling lots of things at you, some of which you do not agree with. Uh, and I always felt one of the most important things I could do is model how to respond to that, which is not to get mad uh, and to try to respond uh, calmly or and, and not to have any repercussions follow from the fact that a faculty member just called you an idiot. That didn't actually happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think I do think modeling um, how you want other people to behave, it may not be the answer, but it is a kind of uh, essential beginning uh, for, how you, for how you handle this. There were a few instances where, where student groups were under pressure not to bring a particular speaker to campus because some other student group objected to it. Uh, and I saw my role in those cases as defending the rights of the student group to bring those speakers. Uh, so, um, you know, again, I was fortunate in not having some of the really difficult incidents that have happened around commencement or visiting speakers on other campuses. Uh, but I think you have to model and defend the kind of behavior you want to see in your community as a whole as the president. If you don't, uh, then I think, um, you know, you have no one but yourself to blame if you see a different kind of behavior on your campus. 
So, so this may be unfair or it may be uh, beyond the scope of knowledge, but since y'all have uh, walked in these uh, corridors with university presidents, I am curious what your uh, reaction, what your thoughts are about sort of the community of people who serve in this kind of role. Um, uh, which is to say that, you know, as I've been working on these kind of issues of academic freedom, I find myself often disappointed and frustrated with how university presidents respond in, in the context of particular controversies. Um, and, and one question I always have about that is that to what degree do they not understand the academic freedom principles at stake here um, or don't care about them? And to what degree is it just that they're suffering from a lot of different pressures and they're just trying to navigate them and there's just extraordinary pressures um, uh, from the other direction um, on, on academic freedom issues? So to what degree do you think uh, your colleagues who serve as university presidents, is academic freedom something that's on their minds that they understand, they think about? Um, uh, or is it, or um, uh, do you think it's the case that um, when these crises erupt, um, there's just so many other things they have to worry about um, that it winds up overwhelming um, the, the, those principles? Keith, if I can reverse roles with you for just a moment, what kinds of episodes in particular uh, did you find presidents particularly wanting in? I mean, what were the kinds of issues that arose that you felt they particularly didn't address properly at all? Well, so so I, I kind of hate to throw particular individuals under the bus on that, I guess, but you it's a well. Not, but, you need not name names. But no, no, so I mean, it is true though. I mean, in part, in part in particular, I guess I'm, uh, with, because it happens a lot these days. And so you see it uh, emerging in public, whereas some things I think are, are often behind the scenes and harder to see. Um, but you see these debates over extramural speech where somebody says something controversial on social media, there's a firestorm of controversy, the professor, the president comes out to react to it. Um, and sometimes they issue statements that I think are great, um, uh, fully recognizing the principles of academic freedom and, and, and upholding them uh, fairly aggressively. Um, other times they promise we'll investigate that and, and see what our legal options are uh, under these circumstances, which I find quite distressing, uh, and, 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 the, and then sort of everything in between. And, um, and of course, in the worst case scenario, they actually do um, uh, suspend or sanction or fire uh, the individual in question. Um, and so, um, and so partially I'm wondering, you know, and so partially I'm always thinking as I see these, those kind of things play out, um, are, are they just trying to compromise the competing pressures they're feeling? Um, and this is how they're navigating it. Or is it the case that some of them just understand these principles better than others and they're more willing to stand up for them than others? Part of the problem is if a professor says something or does something inappropriate, why should the president be the only one who responds? In other words, it seems to me important that it's not just the president because the president has authority who does that, but it really should be the whole group of colleagues uh, that, that makes some recognizable response to it. For so I'm, I'm happy to, to answer the question while Judith is dealing with her uh, technology issues. <laughs> if she disappears suddenly, you may have to answer all the questions. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I'm used to it. Um, so let me begin by acknowledging that being a college president or university president is a really hard job, uh, particularly right now. Um, I, I thank my lucky stars every day right now that I am a former college president and not a current college president. <laughs> Um, that said, um, I would agree that a lot of people who occupy the role do not live up to the responsibilities of the role. 
To me, the most common fault in presidential statements on such things is their vacuousness. Uh, that is, I've become very good at telling when something has run through the mill of the communications office. Um, one of the things that I made a point of doing for 17 years, and it is unfair because I was an English professor, but if a statement was going to go out with my name on it, I wrote it. Didn't mean that I didn't let somebody see it or, or advise me on it, but I felt that it was extraordinarily important for those communications to be authentic. Uh, and my main criticism of most presidential statements is that they read as inauthentic. They read as if they were constructed by committee uh, to have the, the least problematic public impact. And the result is they impress nobody. Um, so, and I, to, your, to the center of your question, I don't think the issue is fundamentally one of understanding. That is, I think most college presidents understand uh, the issues around academic freedom. They're complicated, so it doesn't mean they have easy answers. I think the issue is one of pressure. Um, there is also a difference between public and private university presidents. Uh, so public university presidents are under, depending on the state in particular, they're often, they're often um, reporting to publicly elected boards, uh, many of whom know very little about higher education. Uh, depending on the state, they might have one political agenda or another. Uh, and they need to get money from the state. You know, their job, you know, in the category of do no harm, um, those legislators who they run the risk of getting angry um, need to give them money. And so they're thinking about things like legislators, donors, um, boards of trustees. Uh, and it's, it's challenging in that context sometimes for people to, to do the right thing. Uh, and instead what they do is the, or what they try to do is the least offensive thing. The, the problem when you try to chart a course that offends no one is that uh, you impress no one and often you end up offending some group anyway. So that's why at the end of the day, I think the best thing to do is just be authentic uh, and do what you think is right. Uh, and because none of us can predict the consequences of, of those statements or those actions. Um, so to, to switch gears to some degree to, to get to a different kind of question that came from the audience um, uh, and goes back to, to um, uh, well, remarks you both made, but particularly I think uh, remarks that, that came out from some of Brian's uh, initial comments. Um, somebody asked, uh, who gets to adjudicate um, what counts as truth in the context of these disputes and what really is out of bounds, um, especially uh, in controversial matters where there isn't a clear answer? Um, uh, so in part, you, you stacked the deck a little bit as you were talking about saying things are very demonstrably un untrue. Um, they're being repeatedly said, whereas in lots of contexts, maybe including that context, uh, there's gonna be people who are gonna disagree about whether things are actually demonstrably untrue and, and whether somebody's actually stepped over some kind of line. Um, so, so when we have those kind of disagreements, um, who, who ought to get to adjudicate it? Yeah, and, and I certainly don't mean to suggest that every question that is taught or debated on the university campus has a clear right or wrong answer. I mean, we, we all know that there are many subjects uh, that, that, that simply are not demonstrably true or false. Uh, and in those cases, uh, we have to allow a lot of latitude for a wide range of opinions. Uh, on the other hand, there are some matters that are 
clearly demonstrably true or untrue on the basis of the evidence that we know. Uh, and, and, you know, if we lose, if, if we give up that belief, uh, and, and look, I will acknowledge that, that that's been a problem on, on both political extremes. Um, you know, I, we, I could spend a lot of time talking about the impact of postmodernism on the, the discipline of England. <laughs> uh, but the notion uh, that there is no such thing as truth in any context is one I reject. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's ultimately a judgment call. You know, most scientists would say uh, that uh, evolution is demonstrably true uh, and that uh, therefore they don't teach creationism in their curriculum. Uh, and so, you know, when, you, when you, you begin with the hard sciences where there are probably the most cases of that, um, but, um, but at a certain point, even in, in instances where it's not a science, in the case of an election, for instance, if we can't accept the, that the accretion of concrete evidence finally allows us to make a statement of what is or is not true, uh, if we simply say that there are always alternative facts, uh, then, then I think we pose a, that I would consider a kind of existential challenge to the university. Uh, then we would be I, in the wrong line of work. Then yeah, we would really so, be in the wrong line of work because so, we don't believe in evidence, if we don't believe in logic, if we don't believe we can evaluate sources of information, uh, as, as Brian just said, then, you know, we might as well go into the shoe business, although even in the shoe business. So to what degree are these, are, are there disciplinary boundaries we have to worry about in some of these contexts? So um, uh, to frame it in terms of somebody who asked, somebody asked this question to me the other day, um, of there are things the, the people in the natural sciences, say in particular the biology department, uh, might think are obviously true, and yet the philosophers are spending their time talking about it as if it's not true. Um, and, and potentially then you have people in other disciplines conducting their own research and teaching um, that from the perspective of a different discipline just seems completely wrong um, in, in a way that, because it runs completely at odds with their own conclusions they've reached in their own discipline. Um, so to what degree can you have sort of then cross-disciplinary uh, sanctioning of uh, faculty for um, getting it wrong? Um, and to what degree is it simply a matter of, though you've got to look within the, your own internal disciplinary boundaries and all the assessment of what's professionally incompetent speech um, has to occur within, within those borders as opposed to within the borders of the entire campus? Keith, that's, that's a question that I've actually had to deal with in my, myself in part because there's a prize that's given out together with, by the American Philosophical Association and Phi Beta Kappa called the Leibowitz Prize. I don't know if you're familiar with it. But what's interesting is that um, I come to this as not a philosopher and I'm not about to you know, step on the academic freedom of, of philosophers, but I sometimes say to myself, why can't these people just learn some comparative linguistics? Or why can't these people just do a bit of study of sociology. So in other words, what can happen, and I, don't, I wouldn't make it an academic freedom thing where you wanna fire the person, but there, there is a downside to disciplinary parochialism that really leads to what I would call ignorance. <laughs> and, and that then becomes, I think, rather than say, how should you punish it? I would say, what are the most constructive ways of crossing disciplinary boundaries to gain enlightenment, 
because you know we're a historical artifact university and things do change and you have environmental studies maybe which you didn't used to have which bring together environmental science and various sociological issues so uh, i think part of the thing is how do you solve rather than how do you punish uh, you know might be you know might be the way to approach it yeah i would i would agree i mean again this gets us into interesting gray areas, but in general, uh, I think that if it is a disagreement between responsible scholars in two different disciplines who take a different lens to look at the same question, that's fine. I mean, you might have a physicist who, who says, look, the universe was created by a big bang and this is what happened. And you might have someone in religious studies or philosophy who says, I just don't, I don't look at it that way that's 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 fine i mean that is that's what happens in an academic context you look at the same complex problem from from different vantage points uh and then you know as an individual student you figure out uh what vantage point has the most meaning for you but you know to anyone who says no no questions can ultimately be adjudicated on the basis of what is and is not accurate you know, I would say, what do you do when the student submits a paper that is filled with mistakes? Do you say, well, that's fine. You know, that's yeah. your opinion. You know, you, you, you say that, um, you know, George Washington was born in 1974. Look, you're entitled to your own view. Yeah. Of course we say that's wrong. Uh, and every, every teacher in every discipline does that every day. Uh, and so it just seems to me that making those decisions and distinctions is a fundamental part of, of academic work. It's not always easy, uh, but it is something that we are called upon to do. Yeah. But I do think, Brian, that a topic for another day could be disciplinary relativism, because I do think that that's the structure we have. And I think you're quite right in saying that, you know, that is where the judgments lie. And you don't say, no, it's not God. Yes, it is this. But there are there are really are cases, I think, where getting beyond our historically specific uh, disciplines will get us closer to, hey, like what we think of as the truth or knowledge or really understanding things. But that's for another day. So to continue on this theme of, of who gets to adjudicate truth in a university context, um, uh, one of the things that uh, your opening remarks uh, brought to mind is uh, to what degree uh, do students bear some of the similar responsibilities of pursuing truth and to what degree should universities constrain how students do that? So you can imagine, for example, students uh, being very unhappy with the way the faculty are talking about um, issues the students care about and they want to bring in outside speakers that they uh, find more compelling in various ways. Uh, but from the faculty's perspective, those outside speakers are just charlatans um, who are going to be uh, spouting untruths um, uh, from the perspective of the faculty. Reasonable for the faculty to insist that the university not allow people like that to be brought to campus, even if they're being invited by student groups? How much should the university sort of be containing students in their uh, will, in their students' uh, exploration um, of ideas that might lead them uh, down pathways that from the faculty's perspective are, are deeply mistaken? Well, generally, I think we need to allow students to be students and give them a fair amount of latitude. Uh, and recognize that um, part of the educational process is learning through making mistakes. And so uh, sometimes they're gonna do that. Um, you know, the, to me, 
the ultimate question, one, first of all, one of the questions is, are, are institutional funds being used uh, toward the, this particular speaker? And how many? And you know, universities make decisions every day about, they do cost benefit analysis about spending on something. So, you know, and I think there's no answer that applies in every case. So if a student group had come to me and said, I, I want to spend, we want to spend $15,000 to bring in this X provocateur, um, I would probably, and we, we want the, the college to pay for it, I would have said no. Yeah. That there, there are much better ways to spend that money, uh, much more educational ways to spend that money than bringing in that person. Um, if it's a if it's someone in the community who is you know talks about stuff that's really not particularly accurate and it's not costing anything and students want to hear from that person, uh, it's probably not worth the energy and drama to tell them no. In general, I think we have to have um, we we don't hold students to the same standards. I think that we hold faculty as professionals, which is not to say we don't hold them to any standards. Um, you know, if the faculty objected uh, for some concrete reason to a, a, a particular speaker, I would I would want to know more about that, and it would probably depend upon the particular circumstances. Well, I think there's uh, there's certainly uh, much to be said for uh, an expensive when they want some expensive crummy speaker to point out, you know, things like financial aid or meeting full need, which is one of the things the institution is very committed to doing with its resources. So students then, you know, can have some sense that there are alternate uses for the college's funds. Um, so uh, one question is, is much more specific than this, which is, um, um, are trigger warnings and other speech moderators uh, useful? Um, uh, and, and I'm intrigued by this phrase, speech moderators, and, and I don't actually know quite what, what, how that would be fleshed out. Um, but trigger warnings are certainly one example where, um, uh, uh, which can be implemented in all kinds of different ways. And so um, uh, do you have general views about um, things like trigger warnings and are there some kinds of ways of implementing it that are more acceptable than others? Well, Keith, since you mentioned that, we should note that National Public Radio for a very, very long time begins some stories saying there is some violent material coming here that might not be available. And it's, it's, it's very mild, it's very calm. And so the notion of a trigger warning, you know, has become this hysterical thing. And there may be ways of, of framing certain things that might be upsetting or difficult that, you know, uh, can be as mild and audience appropriate as what, uh, you know, is done by national public radio, for example. Yeah, I mean, we live in a world where, where certain phrases have become freighted with all kinds of of meaning and can can sometimes obscure what for me comes down to just uh, basic empathy and common sense. So when I when I think back to that course I taught a long time ago that uh, I described that had some really challenging material in it, you know I look back on my syllabus and and right at the start of my syllabus I basically said there's some there's some really disturbing material in this class. I think it has educational value, but but if you think it's too strong for you, you probably shouldn't take this class. Uh, and I suppose that would be called a trigger warning today. To me, it just seemed like educational common sense and thoughtfulness about the well-being of my students. So can it be pushed too far? 
Absolutely, like everything else. You know, if, if you have to warn students about every single thing you teach and every text you introduce, absolutely. Uh, but I think, I think we should be able to agree that there is a kind of reasonable place for us to occupy on, on this where, you know, if we're teaching something that we think uh, has a reasonably good chance uh, of provoking a really painful response on the part of some students, we should let them know that, you know, and as Judith said, you know, we, every time you, you watch a movie on Netflix, it seems like there's a little warning at the beginning. Um, and, you know, that's just the way I see it. It's just being, being a human being and, and receptive to the reasonable needs of your students. Like everything else is going to be pushed too far. But I don't think the basic concept yeah. uh, of preparing students for what can be troubling material is problematic. Right. Yeah, on Netflix, it's sex, nudity, and smoking. Those are the they, things they've they added warn more, you about. I think, lately. So, so, <laughs> yeah, yes. they have. They have. But yeah, smoking is an interesting one, right? So, how many of your uh, English novels do you have to warn the students ahead of time that there might be smoking involved uh, in this novel? Um, uh, so, and drug use, uh, potentially. Um, one of the points of controversy around trigger warnings is a question of who gets to decide whether or not they ought to be imposed in a particular instance, right? And so, so, so you all suggested the example of the faculty member making their own decisions about how they introduce their own syllabus and their own teaching the class. Um, uh, one of the issues that's more, um, uh, uh, that creates greater contestation, I think, is um, the idea of uh, university administrators making that determination as to whether or not your syllabus needs a, a warning and what the, what the content of that warning uh, is going to look like. Um, is that an infringement on academic freedom if, if a university administrator tells you what has to be on your syllabus, especially relative to this kind of con content issue? You know, I think again, Brian and I both, and I know it's certainly the case for me, have uh, during my years, have been in, a, in an institution where that simply would not have been the mechanism. In other words, first you talk about it. So I would think the first thing that, that you would do is, is let's say the provost, the president, the faculty, uh, discuss this and try to figure out if they can come rather than just having to impose something. Uh, how are you seeing this? Uh, this is how you would do it. Professor so-and-so does it this way and it works like a charm. So the more one can actually, as we might say here in the Heterodox Academy, have a dialogue about it, uh, that, that would be how you would start, presumably. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, whether we're talking about trigger warnings or we're talking about uh, you know, how we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion in our classes, I think for me, the best way to handle it is just to try to understand and communicate what is best practice. Uh, and encourage faculty to follow best practice. Uh, recognizing that in our imperfect world, not everyone's gonna do it. Uh, and so, um, you know, that, that is, a, that is a, a reality I think we just have to live with. Obviously, if someone goes so far that there are complaints filed by students, then we have to respond. I mean, one of the things that faculty members like all of us are subject to are things like Title IX complaints. Sure. And so if a faculty member chooses to teach material uh, that could be deeply problematic to a, a survivor of sexual assault, for instance, and chooses not to, to put a warning on a syllabus or a caution, uh, and a student files a Title IX complaint, it enters into the, the grinding wheels of the process. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, but 
that's a decision that that faculty member has to make. That's a risk that that faculty member has to take. So the approach that I think is most effective is just in all of these areas where there is some contestation, trying to understand what is in fact best practice educationally and for the community that you're part of and communicating that to, to faculty members. And my experience fortunately has been that most in fact do adopt best practice. Uh, some choose not to, uh, and um, you know, then they're, they're, they, in our current environment, do take on, for better or worse, certain risks uh, that other faculty members don't. But if they choose to do that, I don't think the res the response should be sanctioned, but it could be a student complaint. Um. So this this may go beyond uh, what you feel like you know. Although I'm curious as to, as to whether or not you have uh, views on this. There are, and, there, are and no, there are no boundaries. No boundaries. <laughs> well, so so the question is specifically. That, well, we'll see what you think about no boundaries. So here's the question: uh, Is there a definition of academic freedom that transcends the particularity of the American definition, as useful as that is? Is there a standard that people should agree on internationally? Uh, uh, so so how how are you on the no boundaries? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, no, seriously, I don't. I mean, I, I am obviously uh, familiar with because I've lived my whole life with the AAUP um, guidelines, which were endorsed by both the AAUP and um, the AGB, and I think are taken very seriously or should be taken very seriously by everyone from faculty members up through boards of trustees. Um, but but I, my you know, different countries have different speech laws. There are certain kinds of speech, for instance, in France or Germany that are illegal, that are not illegal in the United States. Uh, and so obviously that is going to uh, create a different definition of academic freedom. So I guess I actually do have an answer, which is that there is not uh, a common international standard because the laws are different internationally. And again, you would know a lot more about this than, than I would, but um, but certain forms of speech that are legal in the United States are not legal in, say, Germany. Yeah. And Keith, speaking of from my experience at, at Scholars at Risk um, and, and giving Heterodox Academy a hard time for giving out a Courage Award. Uh, is it Heterodox Academy? That gives it out does. Courage? Yeah. yeah. Uh, when I see what goes on in terms of the kind of courage that is needed in, in a variety of other countries, I said, you know, you really might want to change the uh, title of that a little bit. So, I mean, when you when you think about what scholars in certain other countries are facing, um, I guess I would say that I don't know really about things that would be more comparable to the kind of, of freedom of speech, academic freedom issues that we've been talking about here, because things can get so dire elsewhere yeah. that. Uh, so let me spin this though in a more, so a more parochial way of thinking about the American context, which is how much diversity among American universities on the academic freedom question do you think is reasonable? So to a remarkable degree, um, despite all the diversity of American higher education, um, uh, there's been a lot of uptake on the AUP's 1940s uh, statement um, and its principles that have been sort of adopted by not all universities, but a, an extraordinary range of universities. To what degree do you think there ought to be more variation or there could be more very room for more variation in the American context where uh, some institutions quite 
properly perhaps uh, depart uh, from the uh, AUP standards? Or do you think any departure is really unjustifiable for an American university? They all, they all ought to look the same on this. Before Brian answers, and he's going to be the one who can really give a better answer. He You're noted, the cultural anthropologist. You're like, <laughs> but he, he noted, however, well, he's been looking more into the AAUP in particular. But one thing he noted was how much more attention academic freedom was getting than the part of the AAUP document that deals with professional responsibility. So that you just, let's just bear that in mind at the same time. Brian. Well, the, the, there is actually some variation and it tends to be most dramatic in um, institutions with strong religious affiliations. Religious institutions. And so, and, I, and the AAUP, the, the more extended AAUP uh, document does, does acknowledge this. Um, so, um, you know, there are, there are you know, very um, restrictive faith-based institutions when it comes to what they define as allowable and not allowable. Uh, or even uh, things that must be taught. There was an institution that I won't name uh, in the Twin Cities when I was um, in Minnesota uh, that required that creationism be taught alongside uh, evolution. Uh, it was just, that was a term of employment. You had to do it. Uh, and certainly in the context of, of what we think of as academic freedom broadly, that violates it. Uh, but um, but there are some, some faith-based institutions that have constricted that definition uh, in ways that make it look quite different from what you would expect at, at most American colleges and universities. So that's, I think that's where you find the most variation. Yeah, there's some variation as well, just to take your, your point there about, um, I mean, I, as you know, there's of course variation on, the, on religious institutions on this front particularly, but there is some uh, variation on sort of the extent to which the statements about uh, the responsive academic responsibilities have been equally incorporated into university documents um, and the like. There's sometimes controversy about the, one, the instances in which they are incorporated into university documents. You said early on that you didn't necessarily think people ought to be sanctioned for violating uh, these requirements of, of responsibility. Um, uh, I guess how how do you think about them once that once once they're built into governing documents they're built in employment contracts for example that says you've got academic freedom but you also have an obligation to uh, speak responsibly and be truthful and respectful um, and things of, of that nature um, are those should those be enforceable in the academic context are there um, occasions in which um, a faculty member ought to be appropriately um, sanctioned or disciplined for um, not rising to the um, ideals that AUP lays out. So here I speak from long and painful experience and say that when one tries to do that, you're pretty much guaranteeing yourself a six or seven figure legal bill. That is, these issues are extraordinarily naughty to, to deal with in the legal system. Uh, and so you know, I, I think you only take the step of sanctioning uh, speech of that kind when it becomes so extreme that you, you really feel like you have no choice. But um, trying to predict, I mean, usually what happens is these things end up in a settlement. Um, but one way or the other, they cost a lot. The only ones who benefit are the attorneys. Uh, and so, um, 
I still believe that that sanctions are a kind of act of last resort uh, rather than a, 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 a first step. Uh, but I do think I've been I've been thinking about that third part of the AUP statement and the fact that it was written um, now 80 years ago, uh, and wonder what it would look like in an age of social media. You know, Judith made this point. Uh, in her opening remarks. When that was written, uh, we had a very, very different, I think, understanding of what behavior and communication as a private individual citizen meant. And the limits of that were pretty constricted. You know, for most people, if you weren't Lionel Trilling, it meant at most a letter to the local newspaper. Uh, and that was about it. Uh, or something that you said to somebody in the hallway. Um, now everyone has a global megaphone. Uh, and so, you know, sh should that statement look exactly the way it looked in 1940? Uh, or should it somehow reflect uh, the world we live in now? Because as I said earlier, um, it creates this tension between what you are free to do and what you should feel obligated to do. Uh, and I'm not sure that that tension is resolved in the statement. Leaving it unresolved in 1940 was probably okay. Um, it might be nice to have a little bit more specificity around it in 2021. So that's, that's I'm, I'm handing a, a, a task to the AAUP. I'm sure, I'm sure this is exactly what they want to take on. I think you're absolutely right. It's a very interesting question. And undoubtedly it's the case that if you're writing it today, you would, you would write it differently. Um, uh, it's an interesting question how you'd write it differently, both in terms of what the ideals are, um, but, but in some ways, even whether you'd even bother including something like that, um, given um, that sometimes that can be a source of, of difficulty for universities, that, that, that there is a standard out there um, that sometimes uh, they try to hold faculty to. Um, uh, so I really appreciate this conversation. It's been uh, terrific. Um, as y'all promised at the very beginning, these are hard questions and, and uh, without clear answers. And that makes for very interesting conversations. And I do think this has been illuminating. Uh, and I uh, particularly appreciate y'all's experience uh, that you bring to bear on, on this. And so I think our audience is very fortunate to uh, be able to take advantage of that. Um, and I, I thank y'all for, for, for doing this. It's been, it's been great. Thank you. Been our pleasure. Thanks, thanks very much, Keith. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you to Judith Shapiro, Brian Rosenberg, and Keith Whittington for this insightful discussion. To learn more about our work and the state of open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement on college campuses, check out the Hot Off the Press 2020 Campus Expression Survey, HXA's nationwide report on the state of campus climate at heterodoxacademy.org. There are some interesting, perhaps even surprising findings. I'm Zach Rausch, your host for this podcast. Thanks for tuning in.